Right, you guys can turn to Romans chapter 7, Romans 7. While you're turning there, one last quick announcement for you. If you are a college student getting ready to graduate, we do have a, a class for you if you would like to attend. We have a class called Life After College. It meets here at Southwood on Sunday mornings, actually right now at the 11 a.m. hour in room 215. I won't mind if you slip out right now. It's a meeting today. It's taught by uh, Mike Gentry, one of our long-standing elders here at Grace Bible Church and his wife, Carolyn, and they teach all the subjects that you need to know about life in the real world, finances, career, marriage, parenting. Uh, that class was a huge benefit to me. It was instrumental in my own life when I graduated 14 years ago, and I know it'll be huge for you. So uh, if you would like to learn about life after college, that is going on now in room 215. Okay, so Romans 7. Today's a big day. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I will, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll confess to you guys. Some of you are excited. Um, I'm not. I'm, I'm really uh, not into, that, into football that much. I really never have. I, I didn't grow up uh, into football. I like Aggie football, but because I was an Aggie, not because it's football. Uh, the reason is, is because football and I never really got along growing up. Um, I'm a small guy. I don't know if you can tell that while I'm up here. Um, I was really small growing up. I was always the second smallest kid in my grade, all the way through elementary school. And I was really weak. Um, the smallest kid could actually beat me up. He was way more scrappy than me. Um, I, I would describe my physique during elementary school as breakable. That, that was really, that was what it was to be me. Um, and breakable doesn't go well with football. I, I wanted to play, but I just couldn't really uh, do it. I couldn't pull it off. I remember one day late in elementary school, my dad is out playing football with one of my best friends, a guy named Denver, who has like the coolest name a guy ever got. Uh, Denver also got athletic ability. He was a year younger than me, but he was way better at football than I was. And so he and my dad are just spiraling the football back and forth, back and forth. And I see that and think, I'd really like in on that. That looks like a fun game. And so I go and, and, and I, I join in, um, and my dad is gracious. He's loving so he throws me the football, uh, which I drop, uh, of course, uh, and, and I pick up this football that just feels huge to me, and I take it and I try to throw it to the best of my ability to my friend, uh, and it ends up going end over end and falling about halfway to him. I, I don't even make it halfway there. Now, uh, I feel really bad at this point. My dad can tell, so he comes and grabs a football, and he shows me for like the 80th time how you throw a spiral. And, and so I'm working on it, I practice on it, he goes back to his position, and I try with everything in me to heave that ball, and still it just goes end over end and gets about halfway there. Now, my dad in Denver could tell that at this point, I'm feeling really embarrassed. I'm feeling bad about myself. So they tighten it up. They come closer. They, they give me the ball again. And, and I try again. But unfortunately, at this point, my weak little arm is getting fatigued. That ball is feeling <laughs> heavier and heavier. And so this time, I heave it still end over end. Can't even get it halfway there. And as it falls to the grass, once again, I burst into tears and run off to my room. And so it was not a good day for me. I went from weakling to crybaby in front of my best friend. <laughs> really bad day. That, that ineptitude with football followed me into junior high and high school. I grew up in Tomball, a small town about an hour south of here, uh, where football is king. Like most small towns in Texas, the entire town descends on the stadium on Friday nights. The, the football team is practically worshipped as they walk through the hallways, and I wanted to be part of that. I, I daydreamed about being uh, the starting quarterback on my high school football team. The problem was my body still wasn't cooperating. Here's me in eighth grade, the tiny little kid. In the, I, I hardly even can fill the picture. Um, I'm standing next to my wind tunnel because in a small town in Texas, if you don't play football, you got to find something else to do. So I built a wind tunnel. Um, <laughs> just kind of what I did. Uh, I, I was still small and tiny and breakable. I, I could not play football, no, no matter how badly I wanted to play. Football represented this world of fun and popularity. I wanted in so bad, but I couldn't pull it off. 
I didn't have the body for it. I could not pull it off. It was not in me to play football. And that left me so frustrated. I could not translate this desire into action because of my limitations. My limitations angered me. And that's what's going on in our passage this morning. That's what our passage is all about. It is about Paul angry and frustrated over his limitations. It's about Paul's inability to translate his intentions, his desires into action. Now, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to read the whole passage to you. We're going to start in verse 14 and go all the way to the end of the chapter. And as I read, read along with me, and I want you to listen to the anger in Paul's voice. I want you to hear his, his frustration and his disappointment. Uh, Paul actually has a hard time even expressing the problem in this passage. He's all over the place because the problem is so deep, so personal, so emotional to him. Look with me starting in verse 14. Paul says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And as we we look at what Paul is saying here, as we dig into this passage, we have to start with a preliminary question. We have to ask ourselves first, is this a believer or an unbeliever in view in this passage? Is Paul describing himself at the time of writing as a mature believer or is he going back in time and describing himself as an unbeliever or a generic man as an unbeliever? That's actually a a hotly debated question. Actually, for for the last 2,000 years, theologians have been debating the identity of the I in this passage. I take it to be Paul. Paul as a believer, uh, and I'll tell you why, a few reasons why I believe this is about Paul as a believer. Uh, First of all, because of the verb tenses. And our passage last week was all past tense. Verses 7 through 13, it's all past for Paul. It's about his childhood growing up. But now in verse 14, it dramatically shifts to present tense. It's all present tense in this passage. It's, it's Paul as he writes the book of Romans. Second reason I hold it to be about Paul as a believer is because of the flow of Romans. Remember where we are at this point in the book. We started out under condemnation. 118 through 320, all really bad news. It's about God's wrath poured out on humanity and how all who are not believers are still under that wrath. Bad news, but then good news. Chapter 321 through the end of chapter 5, it was all about justification, that through faith in Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, we can be declared right by God, be in right standing with God. And then it moved on to even better news, sanctification, that we can grow in holiness and in righteous behavior. That's the section we're in now, chapters 6 through 8. 
So I, I don't think it makes sense for Paul to take chapter seven and go back to condemnation. That doesn't make sense to go back there. Paul has turned the corner on that. He's done with that. So this is Paul the believer, third reason, and I think the most convincing reason, because of the bold statements in this passage that could only be true of a believer. Did you notice Paul said, I agree with the law. He says that I sincerely want to do that which is good. He says that I joyfully concur with the law of God. That can't be true of an unbeliever. Remember back to chapter one, an unbeliever sees God in creation and says, no, thank you. I do not want that. This is a believer who has chosen to align themselves with God. Actually, I would say this is a mature believer, a believer who has applied what Paul taught in Romans chapter six. This is a believer who has seen the folly of sin. This is a believer who has stared sin in the face and concluded, I don't want that ever again. This is Paul as a mature believer. So Romans 7, 14 to 25, it's about Paul as a mature believer who is shocked. Do you notice verse 15, beginning of verse 15? For what I am doing, I do not understand. That, that translation is too weak. Paul's literally saying, what I am doing shocks me. I am confounded. I am dismayed by myself. By, by what? By what about him? Well, verse 15, uh, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. In other words, what is so shocking to Paul is that what he wants to do is please God. That's his desperate desire. He wants to do that which is holy, that which is righteous. But in the actual practice of his life, his actual actions in the world are the opposite. They are evil. Paul, who wants to do good, ends up doing sin instead. Paul says, it's not because I love sin. No, I love God. I love righteousness. It's because I can't help myself. Even though I intend to do that which is good, I end up falling prey to sin. And that leads us to the fundamental issue in this passage. The the fundamental question or problem that Paul is dealing with is why as mature believers, why for us who have committed ourselves to obey God, who have decided that we want to walk in righteousness, why is it that when push comes to shove, we end up falling into sin? In other words, the question of this passage is, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me as a mature believer that I keep falling into sin even though I intend to do that which is good? This is us. This is our struggle. This question is a question that probably every one of us in this room can identify with. Why is it that we have have resolved to do what is right, have resolved to obey God, and yet still so often fall to sin? Students, have you resolved to to never let that relationship get too physical again? But then when the two of you are alone and you're both tired and, and you're tempted, you end up walking down that same sinful path again. And when it's over, you ask yourself, how did this happen again? How did I let myself give in to this sin again? That's Paul's question. Parents, How often have we committed ourselves to love our kids and love our spouse well, but then as the day goes on and we're stressed out and we're busy at work or or worse at home with whining kids, at dinner time our spouse or our child says something to us, it's the last straw and we just lose it. And then when the dust settles, we ask ourselves, how did I do that again? How did I give in to anger again? That is Paul's question. What is wrong with us? As mature believers who have resolved to obey God, why do we end up falling to sin? That's what Paul wants to answer in this question. 
in this passage. He begins his answer right in verse 14. Look back at verse 14. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. Paul begins by showing us what's not at fault, the law. God's commands of good, of righteousness, they're not at fault. It's not the fault of God. It's not the fault of his law. His law is holy, just, and righteous. That's what we studied last week. It's not God's fault. It's not the law's fault. It's my fault. The problem is with me. Paul summarizes the problem in the rest of that verse. I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. That's the answer. In summary form, what's wrong with me? I, as a mature believer, am still of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now, what does that mean? Paul's answer is kind of hard to parse. What does that mean? Let me take each word and kind of define it for you guys. Let's start with the word flesh. The word flesh is used a number of different ways in the Bible. I'll give you a few of them, a few ways that Paul uses it. It can refer to the skin covering my bones. That's what we often mean in English. That makes sense to us. Uh, or it can refer to my whole body, what's on the outside and the inside as well. Or it can refer to all of me as a human being, both my material self and my immaterial self, all of me as a human. Now, so far, those three meanings are all ethically neutral, neither good or bad. Flesh is just what it is. It's just you are flesh because you are human. But often the word flesh is used negatively, as it is in this passage. It's used negatively to refer to me not just as a human being, but a human being who is fallen. A human being who has been broken by sin. A human being whose body and spirit has been corrupted by sin. That's the idea here. It is flesh as fallen humanity. My flesh is not part of me. It's not like an old rotting appendage that I'm waiting to be removed. My flesh is all of me as a fallen human being. All of me as a human being who craves that which is destructive to me. All of me as a fallen human being who is committed to independence from God. That's flesh. That's what Paul means here. He draws out that contrast in verse 14 by saying the law, it is spiritual or literally it is divine. It is from God. It is like God. But I, on the other hand, am of flesh. I am broken. I am limited. I am sinful. I am by nature disconnected from God. That's what the flesh is about. My fallen humanity. And Paul continues to describe it by saying, because I am of flesh, I am therefore sold in bondage to sin. Now, sin here is is not the sinful actions we do. It's sin personified. Sin as a master who rules over us. Because I am of flesh, sin rules over me. Now, for those of you who are astute and who have been paying attention as we have journeyed through Romans, you may be wondering, well, wait a minute. How can this be Paul the believer after what he said in chapter 6? Look back at chapter 6 real quick. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says about all believers, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Well, how can Paul say in Romans 6 that we believers are no longer slaves to sin, but then in Romans 7 say that I am a flesh sold in bondage to sin? The reason he can say that is because there's different senses of slavery. There's different ways that you can be a slave of something. There's legal slavery. Legal slavery is about who owns you. All human beings are owned by something, either sin or Christ. Before you believed, you were owned by sin. Legally, it had ownership of you, of everything about you. But the moment you believed in the gospel, ownership was transferred to Christ. You now belong to him forever. That's what Romans 6, 6 is about. You don't belong to sin, you belong to Jesus. Legal slavery. 
But there's a second sense of slavery. There's experiential slavery. That's what Paul's talking about in the second half of chapter six. This is the slavery of of habits and addictions. If you do something over and over and over again, it becomes a habit that's hard to break. And if it's a bad thing, a sinful thing, it can become an addiction that rules over you. That's true for believers and unbelievers alike. It's true for all of us. That's just how God wired our bodies to work. That's what's going on in chapter six, verses 15 and 16. Paul's talking about experiential slavery, that even though sin doesn't own us, we can make ourselves slaves by experience to sin if we choose sinful actions that turn into habits. But there's still a third sense of slavery, slavery that Paul has in mind in this passage, and that's inherited slavery. This is slavery that flows out of the the traits and dispositions that we inherited at birth. Again, this is the slavery of my athletic inability. I I cannot be a good athlete by birth. That's just part of who I am genetically. I can go work hard. I can get a trainer. I can practice all I want. I will never compete at pro-level football. Why? Because genetically, I don't have a hope. I don't have a prayer. I have inherited a very small body from my parents. I can't compete at that level. That's what Paul has in mind here. That's chapter 7, verse 14. I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. In other words, by nature, from birth, I am a sinner. I have inherited from Adam, my first parent, a sin nature, a bent towards sin. Sin nature, we often use that phrase. It just refers to all of humanity's innate bent towards sin, our disposition towards sin. Refers to the fact that all of us human beings from birth on prefer sin to obedience by nature. That's just what we do. We prefer sin. That's the direction we lean. That's what Paul has in mind here. When he says that we are of flesh sold into bondage to sin, he is saying that we are sinners by nature. And that remains true of us even after we have believed. Even after we have trusted in the gospel, we remain sinners. Remember the gospel, the good news. That Jesus died for our sins. He took all of our sins upon himself and died on the cross, receiving our punishment in our place, and then he rose from the dead. And and the moment you believe in the truth of that, you are justified. You are given eternal life. And justification is a great thing. And that moment in time, it changes your status. You go from unrighteous to righteous in the eyes of God for all eternity. And it changes your destiny. You will forever be with God in heaven. It changes your status and your destiny, but it doesn't change your nature. You are still a sinner by nature until Jesus shows up. Until you see Jesus, you are bent towards sin. Uh, It reminds me a lot of Tarzan. If you guys know the story of Tarzan, from infancy, Tarzan was raised by apes in the jungles of Africa. And then as an adult, he meets a girl named Jane. And and Jane takes Tarzan back to the civilized world where it turns out he is the missing Earl of Greystoke. He's rich. He lives a life of comfort and luxury, but he hates it. And he ends up going back to the jungle. Why? Well, because you can take the man out of the jungle, but you can't take the jungle out of the man. That's what's going on with us. Jane could change Tarzan's location, but she couldn't change his nature. So it is with us. Justification takes us out of the realm of sin, but it doesn't take sin out of us. 
won't be removed until we see Jesus. Until we see him, even though we have died to sin, sin has not died to us. It remains powerful within us. It remains powerful in our flesh, leading us towards sin. Sin uses our flesh as a tool to lead us towards evil. That's what Paul has in mind here. The reason that I continue to give in to sin, even though I intend to do that which is right, is because I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin, meaning I am broken by nature, bent towards sin. That's still true of me. Even after belief, I am still broken and by nature bent towards sin. That will be true until I see Jesus. Sin has broken me and bent me to its will. That's the bad news, and and it leads to some bad results for Paul. Paul tells us that because we who are mature believers who want to please God, because we are still broken and by nature bent towards sin, the result is that there is a war going on inside of us. There's a battle going on inside of you. Look at verse 21 again. Verse 21, Paul says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Uh, Paul is talking about this battle. And in this battle going on inside of the mature believer, it's the inner man, the mind, versus the members of his body. They're at war with one another. Now, uh, what does Paul actually picture happening here? What's actually going on in Paul? To answer that question, I've got to give you a little bit of background. I've got to uh, teach you a little bit of biblical anthropology. Anthropology seeks to answer the question, what am I? What am I as a human being? What makes me a human being? According to the Bible, as a human being, uh, as a human being, I have two sides. One side of me is my material self, my material body. That's the visible me, the outer man. Uh, The biblical words that are used to describe that are, are body, flesh and bones, members. That's what Paul uses in this passage, members of my body. That's my anatomy. That's all the physical parts of me, my skin, my bones, my eyes, my organs, all of the physical parts of me. So as a human being, I have a material side. I also have an immaterial side, a hidden or invisible side. Even if you cut me open, you could not see any of this stuff. There's a number of terms that the Bible uses to describe my immaterial self. They're they're overlapping terms. They're not technical terms that describe different parts of me as if these were organs you could remove. These are just describing different functions going on in my immaterial self. There's the word spirit. Spirit refers to that function of me, that part of me that reaches out to God, Uh, that, that aspect of me that is regenerated and animated by God's Holy Spirit. And there's my heart. My heart is the the seat of my emotions in my will with which I make choices. And there's my conscience, that innate sense I have of right and wrong. And then there's my mind, which Paul refers to in our passage. My mind is, is that ability I have to think logically, to reason, to arrive at conclusions and make intentions. Okay, so as a human being, I have a material side and an immaterial side, and they are unified together into one person. They're not separable. You cannot divide them apart. They are intertwined tightly. They make me one unified person. And the Bible uses the words man or soul to refer to all of me as a unified person, material and immaterial, joined together. Now, it's helpful to understand from this. uh, There is not a physical me and a spiritual me. Uh, There's just me, physical and spiritual joined together. And there's not a real me and the rest of me. No, there's 
There's just me, physical and spiritual, joined together. So tightly joined together, in fact, these two sides are so tightly intertwined that what you do to one side of yourself affects the other. I'll give you some examples. If you don't sleep, that affects your body, but it also affects your mind. I make really stupid decisions when I don't sleep. On the flip side, if if I drink caffeine, that has a chemical effect on my body, also has an effect on my spirit. My best quiet times are after a strong cup of coffee. Why? Because as a human being, my body and my spirit are inseparably joined. What affects one affects the other. Another example, depression. Lots of people ask, if I'm depressed, what do I need? Do I need a truth from the Bible for my spirit or do I need antidepressants for my body? And I say, well, you might need both because body and spirit are inseparably joined together. That's why death is such a bad thing in the Bible. Death is where the material you and the immaterial you are ripped apart. That's what's bad about death. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to die is to be naked. To die is is when my immaterial self is no longer clothed with my body. That's not a good thing. Now, it's it's better than being here because you'll be with Jesus, but we should understand the idea of being a, a spirit without a body for all eternity is not appealing to anyone in the Bible. We were designed by God to be body and spirit joined together. That's why resurrection is such a good thing. That's why over and over again, the hope you see in scripture is hope in the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, your perfected spirit, your perfected immaterial self will be joined to your perfected body. Once again, you will be what God designed you to be. Until that day, unfortunately, we remain broken by sin. All of us. Not just part of us. Sin doesn't affect just part of me. It affects all of me. Sin has broken every part of my humanity. That's what we mean by the word depravity. Depravity means that sin has broken every aspect of my humanity. No part of me is fully good. When I believed in the gospel, God didn't reach down and remove one bad part of me and replace it with something that's completely good. God didn't take out my bad heart and give me a good heart. No, my heart is like the rest of me, still broken by sin and will be until I see Jesus. Okay, so this is what I am as a mature believer. Body and spirit inseparably joined, but all broken by sin. Now let's take that knowledge back to this conflict that Paul lays out for us. Paul says that his inner man, his mind, desires to do that which is right. Again, mind refers to to Paul's faculty for thinking things through, for arriving at logical conclusions and, and making intentions. And Paul's point is not to say that my mind is completely righteous, as if it wasn't still broken by sin. No, his mind, like all of him, is broken by sin. But over time, growing in maturity, growing in his walk with Christ, Paul has learned to set his mind upon that which is good. He has learned to set his mind upon obedience. He has thought through the reasonableness of obedience. That's why Paul can say in our passage, when I sin, I'm not the one doing it. He's not shirking responsibility. Saying that with my mind, my intention is to obey. That's my goal, to obey God. That's the desire I have in my reasoned mind. But unfortunately for Paul, there's another desire within him as well. A desire that is flowing through the members of his body and leading him towards sin. Now, again, remember, members of body, of his body, that's his anatomy, all the parts of his physical body on the outside and on the inside. And your anatomy is not more fallen than the rest of you. It's just that through your body, you interact with the world. Your body is where your five senses are, sight, touch, taste, smell. All all of those things come to you through your anatomy. And so as a result, that's often the channel through which temptation comes. 
Think about it. When, when you are uh, tempted to lust, it is often through your eyes. An image comes through your eyes and temptation sets in. Uh, you are often tempted to anger by words that you hear from someone else. They come through your ear and enter you. So that's what Paul has in mind here. Through my, my body, the members of my body, I receive these temptations from the world, from the challenges that I face, and they create a different set of desires in me. The idea that Paul is laying out here is because I am a mature believer who is still of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, the result is, is that I am divided. I have a divided heart. I have two sets of conflicting desires within one person. Paul, as one unified person, has two different sets of desires going on, one leading him towards righteousness, one leading him towards sin. I love how my professor put it. A mature Christian is a person with a divided heart, with two sets of desires in him, pulling him in opposite directions. Okay, now that's bad enough news that we as mature believers have a, a battle going on inside of us, a divided heart pulling us in two opposite directions. That's bad enough news, but it gets worse because Paul tells us that in this battle with sin, sin always wins. In this battle with sin, this battle between the intentions and desires of his mind and the dissentations of sin coming through his body, sin always wins. That's what leads Paul to the shock in verse 15. I don't understand what I'm doing. I'm confounded by it. That's what leads him to the cry at the beginning of verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man. Paul cannot believe the sin that he continues to commit. Every time that his reasoned intentions to obey go mano a mano with the temptations of sin that come through his body, temptation wins. Why is that? Why is it that Paul's good intentions always fail him? I'll answer that by giving you an illustration. From my own life, uh, every morning I wake up and have a quiet time with the Lord. I spend time in his word. I spend time in prayer. And during that time, I commit myself to obedience. And, and in the midst of committing myself to obedience, committing myself to do a lot of things that, that God has called me to do, one of the things I commit myself to do that day is to love my kids well, to love them graciously, to be kind to them. I make that commitment to the Lord to be kind, and then I step out and begin to interact with the world. I begin to go through my day to experience challenges and difficulty. Uh, I come to work. It's exciting, but it's fatiguing. It's busy. And then I get in the car and I drive home and I always get home at dinner time. And, and dinner time in the Jennings household is not peaceful. Dinner in the Jennings household is, is warfare because my kids don't want to eat, but Julie and I know they need to eat. And so we have this battle of the wills going on and it's very frustrating. It's very difficult. And I begin to get tense. I begin to get stressed out. And then invariably at some point, my boy throws his peas and I lose it. I get angry at Luke. I lash out. I say something that is not kind, that is not nice, that is angry, that is sinful. And as soon as I have said the words, I just feel awful. How did this happen? It's not like I woke up this morning and thought, how can I be a jerk to my son today? What can I do to be mean to him? And, and look at him. How, how could you be mean to this boy? How could you get angry at him? I did not intend to get angry. I intended to be loving and gracious to my son, but in the heat of the moment. When, I, when my resources were spent, when I was stressed and exhausted and temptation came, I fell into sin again. That's what Paul is looking at. When it is my intentions versus the realities of my sin nature, when push comes to shove in the midst of the stresses and strains of life, sin wins and I fall. That's really bad news. 
But there is good news. Sin is only inevitable if I'm on my own. If I'm trying to walk with the Lord on my own. The key word in this passage, you you may not realize this in English, the key word in what we read is the very short word I. Ego in Greek. Um, In Greek, you don't have to say I. I is actually contained in the verbs. And so if you say the word I, you're trying to emphasize something. Paul says it six times in our passage to emphasize that this is Paul alone. This is Paul on his own, trying to do life through his own strength, through his own resources. When Paul, the mature believer, tries to tackle the world on his own, he invariably fails. That's what leads him in verse 24 to cry out for help. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Help me. And then the good news at the beginning of verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. He will help me. I don't have to do this alone. God will step in and come to my rescue. That's the good news of chapter (laughs) 8. Chapter 8 of next week's sermon. It's all good news. Next week, we're going to learn that the cavalry is coming. As soon as you ask, God comes. He comes and stands beside of you. He fills you with the power of his Holy Spirit. When it's you alone against sin, you will always lose. When it's you plus God, you will always win. Because sin can't trump God. If you cry out to God and walk in his strength, you will win. But that's next week. Before we get there, I want you to draw a couple lessons from this. I want you to walk away with a couple points from this passage. Two lessons I think we need to learn from this passage. First, the normal Christian life is struggle. The normal, mature, successful, godly Christian life is a life of warfare, a life of struggle. A life of fighting between what you know you should do and sin within you. For that reason, struggling against sin is not a sign of a lack of faith or a lack of maturity. It's actually a sign of great maturity. Remember, this is Paul. Paul the apostle wrote half your New Testament and he is struggling with sin. I have people come to me who are struggling with sin and it's really causing them to question their faith. I I trusted in the gospel, assuming that when I placed my faith in Jesus, life would begin to work right. Life would get easy. I would begin to always do what God wants me to do. It's not happening. What's, What's wrong? Was this whole Christianity thing a farce? And I tell them, well, no, actually, the fact that you are in a struggle, the fact that you want to obey but are struggling against sin inside of you, that proves to me that you are a believer whom God's working on because a successful Christian life is a life of struggle. It's a life of struggle. You will be at war until the day you die. Peace, cessation of hostilities between you and sin, that awaits Jesus. That awaits seeing Jesus face to face. Until that time, sin is not going to quit the battle. Sin has been defeated by Jesus, but it remains powerful. It's not going to surrender. As a result, if you are not battling against sin in your life right now, that's not a good sign. So we as believers, we have one of two choices. We are either at war with sin or we have surrendered to sin. Those are the only two choices. Sin will not surrender to you, not till Jesus comes and removes it. You are either at war with sin or you have surrendered to sin. And so if you are at, at war with sin this morning, I want you to know that is not a sign of immaturity or doubt. That's a sign of great strength. That's a sign of God at work in you. That is a successful Christian life, a life of active warfare, between the desires that God has led us to and the desires of our flesh leading us to sin. With that in mind, I encourage you, you need to know your vulnerabilities. 
Sin is wise. Sin knows where you are weak. It knows your flesh inside and out. It will come after you at your weakest point and at your weakest time. So know your vulnerabilities. Know where you're weak. Know that sin will attack you there. Second lesson I want you to walk away with from this message is that if you try to fight this battle alone, you will lose. You will lose every time. If it's mano a mano between your willpower, your resolve to obey God, your good intentions versus your flesh, sin living in you, you will always lose. Your intentions will always crater to the realities of sin living inside of you. That's why legalism is a dead end. Legalism is the, is the attempt to please God, to walk with God by checking things off your list. That's through my effort, my ability to check off my list. If that's how I live, I will fail. I will fail because I'm relying upon myself and I am broken. I cannot resist sin on my own. If you try to do the Christian life alone, you will fail. That should lead us to humility. Humility before God and humility before one another. I think the application of this passage is right there, beginning of verse 24. I think all of us should today fall on our knees before God and say, God, wretched man or woman that I am. I want to please you. I know that it is right to obey, and yet so often I fall short. God, I am sorry. I think we should be humble before God. We should be confessing our sins before God. God knows. He can't pull one over on God. He knows how broken you are. Be honest with God about that, and then be honest with one another about that. Be honest with one another about that. I, I want to say really definitively, so that you guys know, I, I don't want you to ever doubt this. In this church, there are not two classes of Christians here. There's not the class of, of elite Christians who have the spiritual life all figured out and who are always walking in victory and who are stepping over the top of sin, not even getting mixed up in it. And then the rest of us who are still struggling. No, there are just us, all sinners, all broken in every part of our being, all tempted by sin every day of our lives, we are all in the same boat together. There is not one person here that is better than you or worse. We're all in it together. We're all of flesh sold into bondage to sin, myself included. There's no elite here. And so be willing to humble yourself before others, to be honest with one another about the areas that you struggle in. I, I encourage all of you to have somebody that you can be accountable to. One or two mature believers of the same gender who you can confess your sins to, who you can be honest and open and humble with. I have that in my own life every week. Gather with a couple other guys who I confess my sins. They know everything about what I'm doing. That keeps me humble. That keeps me dependent. You need that too. You need people who know you inside and out, who you can be honest and humble with. Because all of us are broken. All of us are sinners by nature. Good news is coming next week. So come back for that. In the meantime, let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, we praise you and exalt you. We praise you that you are not weak. We praise you that you are not limited. We praise you that you are never tempted by sin. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that you are victorious and almighty. And Father, we come before you this morning and we confess, we get on our knees and cry out, Lord, we are wretched. We are broken. We are sinful. We are not as righteous as we think we are. We do not have it all together, Lord. We are broken and in desperate need of you. Not just on that day that we believe the gospel, but every day thereafter, we are always completely dependent upon you. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would keep us humble. We pray that you would convict us of our sin and break us over our sin and help us to be vulnerable with you and vulnerable with one another, willing to confess where we're struggling, willing to to seek out help to walk with you. And Father, we praise you that Romans did not end at the end of chapter seven. We thank you that help is coming in chapter eight, that you do not leave us on our own, that it is not just I trying to walk in the, in the spiritual life, but that you come and fill us with your spirit. You give us the strength that we don't have to walk in victory. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you love us so much. We praise you and thank you for your son who makes all of that possible. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.